This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 666, a conversation with Judd Winnick. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 666. It's our conversation with Judd Winnick. It's actually the second time that Judd's been on the show. Uh, as he comes back to talk about uh, his high-low book series, as the fifth volume has recently come out back in January. Uh, so we chat for a good long while about the new volume, and we get a little bit into spoilers, but uh, he does make sure to give a, a proper spoiler warning uh, before we go in-depth into the new volume in terms of uh, some of the things that happened in that new book. We also talk about his process, uh, where high-low kind of comes from, um, what his tour has been like, uh, kind of going to the different schools and uh, bringing Hilo out with him. Uh, so it's a really fun conversation there. Uh, we also do segue a little bit more into his comic book work. Uh, we kind of touched lightly just for the last 15 minutes or so. Um, actually, our next episode, episode 668, coming out next week, uh, will be a, a longer conversation with Judd going more in-depth on his Green Lantern and Outsiders runs, as well as touching lightly on some of his other comic book projects. He's worked on a lot of books over the years, uh, so even though he's currently concentrated on Hilo, there's still a lot of comic book work to talk about with him as well and uh being able to actually do a deep dive on green lantern and outsiders was, was a lot of fun and very interesting because uh you know that was before podcasts were really a thing back when he was working on those books and uh to actually get to talk with him about kind of the the, the decisions that went into putting those books together especially green lantern because we get into the terry berg character who was a big character at the time of that uh the green lantern book introduced a, a, a gay sub um, uh, supporting character and uh, eventually had the character be a victim of a hate crime. So it was actually really interesting to kind of go deep on, you know, where the idea came for that character and for that storyline to come about, which actually ended up predating Judd's ter- ter- uh, time on the book, which I actually found to be a surprise. So that'll be something to look forward to on our next episode. But for now, uh, you can settle in for a conversation about Hilo, uh, as well as talking a little, a little bit about Judd's comic book work. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Judd Winnick. Judd, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Thank you for having me, sir. It is absolutely my pleasure. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Well, as we said last time, I was, I guess, about a year ago, or maybe last February, we talked about that you had a fifth volume coming out, and I was like, well, I definitely have to have you back on to talk about the fifth volume of Hilo. Uh, when, uh, then everything went wrong. And what's the critical reception been so far to the new book? Um, I, I think people dig it. I, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I, I partially want to say, like, like I'm the last person to ask. I don't pay attention to that, but that's kind of a lie. Um, <laughs> I will say that uh, Hilo returned to the bestseller, the New York Times bestsellers list, so that was pretty cool. Um, so it actually made the series list, which was new for us. Um, just, just, just for one week, but it was up there with all the heavy hitters. You know, small book series like Harry Potter and, you know, <laughs> Diary of a Wimpy Kid and Percy Jackson, you know, little guys like that. Um, so the book did very well. The series continues to do very, very well. I, I mean, these, you know, I have very little to complain about. It's been beautiful. Now, what kind of uh, launch did you guys have in terms of like a book tour? Because I know you'd mentioned, or at least uh, your publicist said that you were doing a book tour here and there. Like, where were you going, and what type of venues were you going to? Well, it, um, it's a it's a two part answer. I mean, one. 
doing uh, doing a big book tour when you're doing middle grade books doesn't really matter all that much as far as the timing of it. It's not like the, when the book comes out, you got to you got to hit while the you know the iron is hot. You got to get out there just when the book comes out because it's you know kids are you know these are kids eight to twelve and. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not like they pay attention to advertising or television or mm. you know or, or media much. So uh, primarily, I go. I mean, almost exclusively, I go to schools and uh, and bookstores, and it's fun. You know, I go out for a couple of weeks, and I mean, everybody should have my job. I, I literally go. I do assemblies. I mean, me, you, you remember when you were a kid and you go to you were in school and you went to an assembly? Oh yeah. You know, and it was it was the greatest thing in the whole world. It was an hour outside of class. You weren't in school doing your thing, and it could be whatever. It could be about you know fire safety or how to build a drum. You didn't care, mm-hmm. but it was an hour when you weren't in class. And me, I'm talking about you know cartoons, superheroes, monster movies, stuff like that. So it's just it is an hour of awesomeness for me. You know, <laughs> kids love it. It's 300 kids a pop who are just so excited to hear me prattle on about. Hilo and making up stories and superheroes and stuff like that. Um, so it's great. It's great. I highly recommend it to anybody. It's much better than drugs. <laughs> now, how do you how do you even like prep for an assembly like that? Like, do you kind of pilot pilot it out at all in your own kids, or do you just kind of like how do you kind of put together what's going to work for that kind of set? Because it's very different, obviously, than pretty much any other audience you're ever going to have. Well, I always try to thank all ages with pretty much everything, but that, there's degrees with that. Mm-hmm. But for every for every book, I, I literally come up with a new talk. Um, I I prepare a keynote presentation that has like you know a couple hundred pictures, where I will tell them a story about something, something to do with Hilo, but mostly it's something to do with my life and how it sort of ties into Hilo. You know, originally it's like you know how I came up with the story originally, and and here's a story about how you know something came up in the second book uh, and, and here's in the third book which is you know I started talking about this thing that happened to me in first grade this most recent one I'm actually giving the 12 rules of making up stories <laughs> because in it inadvertently a kid will always ask almost every time how do you make up stories it's like uh, man I could devote an entire talk to just that so I decided to do that I decided to divide it to devote an entire talk to just that so I prep I take I take you know I take a week or two and figure out what I'm going to say for sure, and and you know, and when that I'm out there, sometimes I change it up. It's like I'm not gonna tell them this talk. I'm gonna tell them that old talk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's it's early. Let me tell them the talk about the second book when my daughter helped me come up with the cat because that's the funny one. And it's like eight o'clock in the morning, so let's do that one. <laughs> now here's a question. So I mean, when you have, I mean, you're you're five books deep now, um, and obviously, hopefully, many more to come. Um, when you are giving these talks, are you finding that you know it's people who have been kind of following along with the series for the last few years, or people who are newer to the to the property? Like, how do you kind of see that with the kids that you end up talking to? It uh, it varies. I mean, with some with some schools, I will go to, and uh, you know, full humble brag, they have been preparing for you know, weeks, if not months, for me to, to, to get there. And it's great. It's ridiculous. They've, you know, they've done drawings as a banner. Um, kids have made their own shirts. Um, and there's 300 kids there, and every one of them has a Hilo or five that they <laughs> want me to sign. And it is um, ridiculous. It's, you know, it's like a parade that you go to, that, you know, you're, I don't know, the subject of the parade. It's not even like being the guest of honor. It's, you know, it's, you know um, and then on the flip side, I will go to schools, and they have absolutely no idea who I am. Oh, wow. They haven't read the books. The librarians 
don't even carry them in their, their library, not at all. And you know what? Both are fine. <laughs> you know, one is um, celebratory and fun, and they're loaded with questions, and I could be there for three hours, even though I'm there for like 90 minutes, and uh, it is an absolute blast. And the other one is also a blast because they have no idea who I am, and I'm just going to tell them about what I do and who I am, and it's, it's still always great because it's just, you know, I make things up and I draw them. That's my job. And if you're going to tell kids about that, it's just – it's a little bit nuts. They they love hearing about that. It's fun. You know, I'm not knocking people who do things like accounting or sell insurance. But you go try to talk to 300 kids about that for, for an hour and a half. It's it's a tough sell. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, you bring up a question. So if when you go into one of these talks, and again, you don't maybe don't know the vibe until you get there, do you find it, do you adapt your presentation because it's not a crowd that's automatically primed for what you're bringing? No, not really. No? It's, it, I mean, honestly, um, this, uh, this, this talk I'm giving right now, which is the 12 Rules of Storytelling, is the most lesson-oriented one I've ever done. The rest are just um, kind of fun, entertaining maybe a little bit moving here and there that I'm trying to like make, make a point about what it is to be a kid and growing up and things like that. Um, I don't really, I mean, I'm like the, the thing is kids are kids and, uh, I will go to, I will go to, and to be blunt, the most exclusive private schools you could possibly imagine, you know, places where people are spending $30,000 a year to send their kid to the third grade. Um, you know, you don't, you, you don't get much more than this. And, Conversely, I will go to a lot of underserved schools, underserved schools where, to be blunt, that um, the, some of the kids are homeless. Some of the kids, uh, they get two meals a day, and that's because the school provides them. Uh, and that the teachers on the sly are doing a little laundry service where the kids, they, they'll wash the kids' school uniforms for them. So it's, so it's rough. So one side to the other. Thing is, all kids are so much the same, it's crazy. They all laugh at the same jokes. They all ask the same questions. They all are interested in the same things. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So, you know, talking about whether they know Hilo or they don't know Hilo, whether they're coming from one socioeconomic bracket or another, it doesn't matter. Kids are so, so similar in so many ways. It is amazingly hopeful and heartbreaking at the same time. Hmm. I guess a part of it, um, when you're giving these talks, and because you have so many visual aids as well, I guess that it kind of speaks to the strength of your of cartooning in general, but also of your cartooning is that it is um, you know everyone can kind of understand what's going on. Like it's not as so specialized as a comic book that might be dis, you know kind of disarming to someone. Whereas there's just something about the simplistic nature I, I, that sounds like I'm being um, uh, kind of rude to comic to the cartoons, but there's just no, something no, about no, it, just something about it that everyone can kind of latch onto and kind of see themselves in it because it's kind of looser. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's 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 a reason why there's a reason why people think cartoons are for kids, and I think it's always been because in general they're kind of cute and they're very very accessible, and things that are generally easy we tend to think. Well, that's for children. <laughs> that's just that's just the nature of human beings. If it's easy, if it's simple, then we're you know we're, we're shooting low, and it must be for kids. But um, yeah, I'm a visual artist, and even when I'm telling a story, um, you know, I tell you, I get the hot sweats when it happens sometimes when my iPad's not properly hooking up to their slide projector or their 
I don't know, or their very expensive sound system and they can't get the projector to work and whatever it is. Like, oh God, don't make me just get up there and talk to them for half an hour. I just, you know, <laughs> I, just, I, I can't, I can't do it. I, I, I need, my, I need my pictures. You know, I got to do it that way. And I, I I'm being 100% honest. <laughs> I I really it is the only thing I really stress about when I go out to do these talks. I don't get nervous. I don't I'm not, you know, I don't get agitated in front of crowds. There's no question that could possibly throw me. I don't care if the kids are bored. I can always get them back. None of that. I think the thing that sweats me the most is if I don't have my pictures to back me up. If the, if my iPad is not going to hook up in there and I can't show, I got 125 pictures that go with this talk, and I got to show all of them. If not, forget it. I'm dying up here. I can't do it. So that's the only thing I worry about. So you're right. Yeah, there's there's a there's a universal uh, storytelling quality that what just follows us around in life. You know, mm-hmm. we are. We're visual, man. We're, you know, walk up to any bathroom anywhere in the whole wide world. You're going to be able to get in there because you know the picture. You know, it's, that's the way it is. That's the way we work. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to I want to ask you a few questions about uh, Volume 5. And I, I guess the spoilers for those who haven't read Hilo Volume 5, which is, uh, I really okay, enjoyed... Spoiler alert. Let's yeah. do a spoiler alert. Let's take them a moment for, <laughs> for, for everyone to step away, step away, because we're going to be talking about Book 5. And there is a big, massive spoiler. Yeah. Which I... It's during my Q&A when I talk to kids. Oh, yeah? it's, I, I, I tell them to speak in a, in a good, loud voice because uh, although my ears are big, they don't work quite as well as they used to because I used to listen to a lot of rock music. <laughs> and if you're a big fan of Hilo and you've read all the books, if you're asking a question, it's a spoiler. I might cut you off and say, it's kind of a spoiler. Come find me after the talk and I'll answer your question. Like Those are my two requests. Okay, they, they've had time to shut it off. All right. Fire away with the most spoilerish question you possibly got. So, first of all, Volume Five is great. Um, so, I, I've been en- I've been enjoying them with my uh, who's now five and a half year old uh, who loves all the books. And so, his first question when it was over is, "When's the next one?" <laughs> Um, it's just sweet music. That's you know just what you want to hear. For sure. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because like reading it, it has probably. Uh, of of all the volumes, definitely felt like I had the biggest cliffhanger in terms of really needing to read the next one because the last, like I think the last ten fifteen pages, like you build up to such a rhythm and you feel like every page is going by so quickly as you're kind of rocketing towards this conclusion and then you kind of get this big reveal at the end. Um, how did you kind of pace that out to make sure that it did land with the appropriate gravitas? Um, part of it is just, I don't know, I don't have any usable skills. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is, this is just what I do. I mean, I, I, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be glib, and actually, I, to be honest, I, um, I spent a very long time thinking about the ending. Um, it's, it's some of the biggest advice I give to kids, um, just routinely. If, you know, I have any advice, is like, okay, you got a big idea, think of your big idea. Think of your big idea and uh, think of an ending. And I've had a couple of years to kick around where this story is going to land. So um, I've been thinking through those beats for years, <laughs> um, years. So now here we are, and I really knew that um, I could see it in my head. I've been I've been walking through those last like ten or fifteen pages in my head for. A couple of years. So when I was doing it, it was kind of dictation. It's just like there. I knew it was going to be. Hmm. So I don't have a good answer, except I had the opportunity to really think about it a while. Okay. I do have to say that the um, uh, Izzy's uh, This Is How All the Pieces Fit is so ominous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help anything but say, say good. Um, 
Well, and I love. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you dug it. It's. Um, it means a lot to me to hear that. I, um, for the most part, my job is. You know, I'm in. I'm on my own here. I'm in a room by myself, making up things and drawing them. Um, and then goes out in the world, and you don't know. Um, and uh, it's great. It's great to hear that. Uh, again, it's great to hear that this little ending that was rolling around in my head that. Um, <laughs> that it, it struck something with you. I appreciate that. No, appreciate give, that. given the origins of a book like Hilo, which again, you said before was that you kind of wanted something that your kids could read that wouldn't be more mature. Um, do you talk about where the stories are going to go with them at all? Or like you've said in the past, like obviously your, your daughter helped, you know, kind of form the creation of one of the characters, but how much involved are they? Do they have a sense of where the story goes? Have you talked about it with them or how does that work? Um, they're great. They're my, they are my own private little focus group. Um, I will talk to them about a lot of things quite a bit. Not everything, because some things I actually just uh, I won't show them. Because sometimes in the telling, it's just you know, it's it it is again visual storytelling. And you're trying to it's almost sort of like trying to talk about humor or tap dancing. You get into it too much, it just it doesn't sound right. Mm. Um, but I do bounce a lot of things off of them. Like, what do you guys think about this? I was thinking about doing something about that, and um, you know. If they react really well to it, great. If they react really poorly to it, then maybe I gotta dig in there. Maybe they're, it's not quite right. They are my first readers, and um, that really tells me a lot. Um, case in point, this very book. When they finished this very book, they put it down, and they had to know what happened next. They, <laughs> they were they were they were on me, and they were not. I mean, they like dead dead. You know. Um, I'm going to give a spoiler reveal that it turns out that one of our characters, Izzy, is now siding with the bad guy Razor Work, and um, they wanted to know. It's like, is she bad? Is she really bad? Dad, dad, no, no. It's like, no, don't, don't not tell us. Come on. Dad, dad, like, no, it's like, I'll tell you, just stop. Just calm, calm down. Like, okay, it's good. This is good. They really want to know. All right. That's good. They're very unhappy. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the sixth book, some, um, some pretty dramatic things happen. Um, here and there, which I thought they might not like, um, but they were okay. And that was one of the things where, um, when I thought about it, I was like, well, no, it was book five that really cheesed them off. They were like really, you know, out of their nut about that. Um, and there's been, along the tour, I've, I've met uh, a bunch of hardcore Hilo fans where I had to, I had to set a couple of kids at ease who were a little worried about, you know, a good guy turning bad. And I'd explain to them, it's like, well, what do you think's going to happen? And they said, I don't think she's really bad. It's like, okay. I think you should, I think you should relax and just kind of go with that. <laughs> I said, because sometimes, you know, we try to fool you. I said, I'll tell you this. Everything works out. And, you know, we kind of leave it at that. And they're, they're satisfied knowing that I'm not doing something flippantly. I think kids just want to know that you're just not, you're just not jerking them around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Which I'm not. It's part and, of a plan. I mean, obviously, you would have a better sense of this than I would in terms of your interaction with many different kids about it. But I mean, it's interesting. I would imagine the kid audience, on, on the one hand, is not used to the same tropes that so many of us are, right? So that there's like we're kind of I hate to say jaded, but you know, as you get older, you've you've seen more tricks, right? So if you're hitting them when they're younger, right. I would imagine that this, those tricks still exist, and so you can kind of do things that maybe an older audience would not. You know, take it the same way because they'd be like, "Oh, well, that's you know, that's that's fine because we know that this happened here, this happened there. I, I know my fiction. I know that this is going to go back to normal, or whatever the case might be." But how is that interacting with kids where they don't have that kind of built-in language? No, a lot of times there's stuff that's you know we would view as uh, as a gimme, 
as a trope, as something easy, that no, they don't see coming. And, uh, you know, I'm able to do that. Um, including, like, jokes. Like, sometimes I, I, will, I will throw a joke and then I know, like, this is, this is just older than God. You know, this <laughs> joke. Um, you know, but you know what? There's a reason why it's older than God because it still works. And this is, it's funny because Hilo is saying it and we're, I'm just going to do it. And it's kind of cute in this context. And, uh, you know, for the grownups, it's a knowing, ironic joke, maybe. For the kiddos, it's totally new. But, um, you know, it, it, it isn't, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I get, to, uh, I, I had 12 years of writing superhero comics and there's all manner of trope, cliche, devices, plot things that I can do that I do. Um, I do use them, which we've all seen a million times in any number of superhero comics, but for kiddos, they have not seen these things a million times. So you're right. So I know full well, like, yeah, I could go do that and they haven't seen that before, but even for me. I do want to bring something fresh to it, um, and he, but but knowing full well that the angle that it's coming from that it's about these three kids and it's in the way that I'm telling the story that um, even if you see you know well, uh, 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 an adult came up to me and said like you know um, just the other day how much you know the things they love and they brought like and again I'm the biggest Doctor Who fan in the world and I said you know that there's no bigger influence on Hilo than Doctor Who and they're looking at me he's like oh you don't see it it's like no, it's, it's all right there. It's, it's all right there. Some, some, some mysterious, uh, you know, powerful character like a wizard comes out of nowhere, gets together, and then they start seeing like two human companions, and they go on an adventure. It's like, oh my god, yes, Doctor Who. I go, yeah, Doctor Who. I said, and Hilo is is kind of like the ninth Doctor. He's like more like Christopher Eccleston and, and a little David Tennant. He's like extremely positive. He's like, oh my god, now I see it. Yeah, like every time, like he's he like loves everything. New and fascinating, like oh my god, it is Doctor Who. I go, yeah, it is. I was like, I'm really, I can go so far as like I'm totally ripping off Doctor Who, but you know, to a degree, <laughs> it's I think I think inspired in so many ways, um, which is another thing I tell like people want to make up stories. Like it's okay to steal, it's okay to steal. It's just that you have to steal to the point that people aren't able to recognize it. It's okay to be inspired. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can flat out go out and rip off Star Wars as long as no one will recognize it. Star Wars, you know, you'll be fine. Absolutely. Just, you know, just find your inspiration from the stories you love. Now, in this volume, you bring back, obviously, fan favorite Polly. Um, but you give her, yes. a make, give her a makeover, which I didn't didn't see coming. Um, first of all, how did you kind of settle on the exact visuals? Because it seems just perfect. And then how did you, how did you kind of figure out how to make her still feel like Polly, even when you're not dealing with the same physicality, per se? Well, I guess with the folks playing at home, I have an anthropomorphic cat character called Polly. Yes. She's, uh, yeah, she's literally a talking cat who also happens to be a sorceress. Um, any more explanation by that? We don't have that kind of time. But she, uh, <laughs> she's on Earth, and she, uh, she, she does a spell that makes her look human. Um, and um, this began with the notion of the idea, and I, I walked it past my daughter who, um, she's 10 now, and when she was about 6 or so, maybe 7, um, she inadvertently helped come up with Polly. Um, she was bugging me for, uh, while I was writing the second book, she was bugging me to put a cat in the book, <laughs> and I was developing this this sorceress character, this little girl who was going to be a witch, and the character wasn't really coming together, just the whole story wasn't working. And then with my daughter bugging me to put a cat in the book, I had this crazy idea, like, well, what if I make this little girl into a cat? And then, boom, the whole thing came together in a crazy way. And then after that, I got to tell my daughter, like, yeah, I put a cat in the book. It's like, you really put a cat in the book? It's like, yeah. And she's, oh, my God, she's so much fun. I'm having so much fun with her. So thank you. This cat in the book, wait till you see her. And I showed her pictures, and so she takes ownership of it. 
so when I had this idea of making Polly into a human being for you know um, for a quarter of the book, um, I ran that past her like, yes, you're in disguise, and she's gonna. I explained to her the scene that she's a uh, you know wave the wand over and there's a big poof, and suddenly she's a little girl. And she looks at herself and she goes, "Oh my God, I'm gorgeous! Look at me!" Yeah, and my daughter's like lost her damn mind. So that was the funniest thing ever. And uh, she had a description of what you should look like, and I said, "Okay, okay, okay, okay." I will say that the the original drawing. My wife, my daughter, shot down her hair. They didn't like her hair. Um, I said, "What's wrong with this? Like, it's, it's it's too big and curly." I said, "Listen to you guys. Like, what, her hair has to be like beautiful." It's like, "Yes, yes, her hair has to be beautiful." <laughs> I, I originally had like kind of a big mane of curly hair, and uh, my daughter and my wife did not approve. They didn't, they needed her to be prettier. Um, and after that, it was just fun. It was just fun. She uh, she's she's this great character, which. Um, I, I really do consider myself lucky that like that it, she popped in my head the way she did, because um, kids love her as much as as my kids love her as much as I do. Mm-hmm. Um, this insane little cat. For sure. Well, and you've mentioned that again that scene where you know she's gawking at how great she looks when she's a human. My son also loved it and responded the same way. And even I found it hilarious. Like it was just so funny. Like just the the good gravy. I'm gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, there's something there's something funny about I don't, I don't know just blind egotism I guess it is or just um, you know there's you know and even like and and, and so, well, I guess what I haven't thought about too much but I guess what's also funny is that you know she's not particularly gorgeous she's just you know <laughs> she, she just is you know she kind of looks like a human embodiment herself she's kind of she's kind of squatty she's kind of short she's mm-hmm. big, got a big mouth and like like short arms and legs but you know she thinks she's beautiful and that just that's hilarious. Um, that's I mean part of her character is that she's um, it's not just egotistical she's so certain of herself and I think that's what's awesome mm-hmm. yeah, I, think it's, I think kids respond to that too that, that she is never ever ever in doubt no um, and it makes her fun now a, a big departure I would guess for this book in terms of the narrative structure is that you kind of split up our kind of our main characters and then you have a very which I really did enjoy because you get to see the characters interact in a different way like we're used to seeing DJ and Hilo but we're not necessarily used to seeing the other characters operating on their own and then with these kind of robotic versions of DJ and Hilo to kind of shepherd and deal with what was it like to kind of create a narrative structure where you were kind of bopping back and forth because you have so many different subplots going down yeah I was um, I was a little bit worried with that you know that that um, well, coming from the place that I, I really, um, I'm trying really hard not to repeat myself, and, and and it's always I'm a little bit worried when I do that. One because I kids do like repetition; they do kind of want to see the same book again. But I know that that's just bad. This is wrong. Each book should change it up in a big way. Each book should move forward. Each book I try to leave behind um, some of the uh, you know. Um, some of the callbacks, some of the repetitive jokes, some of the repeating jokes. Like, yeah, you know, we did that one in the first book. We're not going to do it again. I did that for two books. We're not going to do it again. Time to move on. And in this case, it's like, okay, I'm going to have, I'm going to have, I'm going to have the gang split up. We're going to have, you know, uh, you know, Polly and Gina and Izzy are going to be on Earth, and Hilo and DJ are going to be on Hilo's planet, and we're not going, and they're going to be split up the whole, nearly the whole damn book. Um, so, what's that going to be like? And um, I was I don't I didn't know if it was gonna work. <laughs> just one of the things you gotta you gotta go with your gut. It's like yeah, I haven't done this before, and uh, my my fallback, my go to, the thing I know more than anything else is that 
if it's entertaining and funny, everything else will be okay. It really will. It's just, I've always been very, well, cautious, worried, concerned, try really hard, that no matter how dramatic it might get, that it's still pretty funny. And uh, that's that's stuff I love as a, as a reader, as a viewer, um, as an audience member. I always like stuff that kind of cracks me up as much as it's, you know, some of the, my favorite dramas um, are always kind of funny too. You know, on the action-adventure side, you know, what's funnier than Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Buffy's funny, you know, always, consistently funny. Um, I think that's what's great about the Marvel movies. I think that's why they always deliver the goods. It's because they know they, you know... T- no one to crack wise. They know how to like have a bunch of jokes, and it's not just like a comic relief. This is the one character who's funny. Hmm. Everybody's a little bit funny. Everybody makes a few jokes here and there, like human beings in real life. People actually have senses of humor. It's kind of cool. I think you're allowed to you're allowed to make big steps. You're allowed to make big moves in story as long as people are having a good time. Um, I mean, really and truly. Um, so that's what I try to do. I, I know I can do these complex things that are slightly more complex, and then we move forward a little bit. As long as everyone's having a good time. Mm-hmm. I have a question about the Doctor Horizon kind of visual. Um, given obviously the the ending, we know that not everything is uh, as pleasant as it kind of seems at the beginning of the book. So, how did you go about kind of designing the character to look so visually appealing and very much like kind of a, a kindly uncle kind of design? And yet, you know that it's not going to kind of go that way. So, how did you kind of be able to figure out exactly how to make him resonate in a way that would cause a bigger surprise when you do the reveal? Is a little bit based on Mark Maron. I just. <laughs> oh my God! You're right. At the, at the time. At <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it till no, right uh, now. <laughs> oh, now you can't unsee it. Now no, I, I can't. And I, I, but I think Doctor Horizon is more Mark Maron than Mark Maron is. If you look at it, um, like he's an ex- he looks like an exaggerated character of Mark Maron. When I started doing the book, um, five years actually, when I started knocking around with the book. Um, just in my head a bit um, I had the idea of uh, the scientist and um, it was actually I was listening to Mark Barron's WTF a lot and um, it was actually before it broke big at all um, and I just thought it'd be fun um, part of the reason why I did ILO one of the inspirations of ILO was that, uh, how Mark Barron, like chucked it all like I'm going to do this podcast I'm going to be shit who listens who listens to it if it's just if it's just me in my garage doing it it was around time that I was kind of interested in transition myself so I thought it'd be kind of fun to put him in there a little bit. A little homage. Um, and uh, part of it when I was drawing it out, and I said, you know what? Part of him looks like, in this way, kind of looks like that kind of cool, stereotypical scientist, I don't know, slash awesome high school science teacher. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted him to look atypical from every scientist we've ever seen everywhere. Mm. Um, he does have the glasses. He's got the obligatory glasses. And he's got the lab coat, but you know, he wasn't like ancient and bald. He wasn't, you know, uh, it, it just, it, it felt the way I did him. It felt slightly atypical for me from what we usually see with scientists. He didn't look nerdy and bookish. Um, and, um, Later, we find out that he isn't at all what he seems, which is, you know, which was going to be fun for me as well. Um, that was just going to be like, okay, this is, um, I don't even, want, I don't, I don't even feel comfortable talking about that one out loud. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> even, though, even though we're discussing big spoilers, I can't, I can't quite bring myself to even do that one. Um, but um, I think it's more fun talking about the fact that yes, Doctor Horizon was based 
uh, in a large part on Mark, Mark Maron. And I, I Mr. can't Maron, see it. Gets back to you again. Please. Uh, well, yeah. No, it's there. It's there. I totally gets it. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's so funny. I'd never even thought of it, but the minute you said it, I'm like, yep, there he is. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, with working on the sixth book, so the sixth book is coming out, I guess, in 2020, correct? Yeah, probably January, February of next year. Yeah. So what is it like kind of crafting? I, mean, I would imagine you're still working on book six as we speak, or is it kind of almost near the end? I don't know what your development cycle really looks like now. Or I just finished not too long ago, um, like uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, now it's being colored. Um, um, it's uh, the way, I mean, um, I'm lucky that when I'm drawing the book, it occupies one part of my brain and they get to work on another, you know, I get to start thinking about the next book and the other part of my brain. Mm. So, um, so book seven has been knocking around my head. I mean, the general bones of it have been knocking around my head for a couple of years. And now for the past, I don't know, six months or so, I've been able to like kind of dig in and really think about it. Cause now the reality of like, okay, book seven and, uh, book seven is going to be interesting, fun, possibly easier. Um, because it's going to be a whole new Hilo story. Um, I'm, not, I'm not getting anything away by, by saying that in the sixth book, we wrap up the big story, uh, the first big Hilo story. So the story of the mystery of who Hilo is and why he's here and uh, what he can do and what he's about, um, all of that's revealed. Like Hilo remembers everything and gets his memory back. And this big battle with our, our big bad guy, Razor Work, wraps up in the sixth book. And with the seventh book, we're going to start an entirely new Hilo story um, you know the series goes on our same three characters Hilo, DJ and Gina but now something totally new and we'll go on from there um, so with this one um, yeah so now I'm about to uh, now the real work begins uh, <laughs> the drawing is is kind of just the fun part um, and I don't know anybody who draws it doesn't say that uh, drawing might have its challenges but it's way more fun than coming up with the stories um Writing's hard. Not hard, just challenging. Mm-hmm. It's not like laying bricks and everybody should have my problems. But <laughs> um, this is where it's like, okay, now it's time to make up this thing and it's got to be funny and is this funny enough and is that interesting? Is anyone going to care? And boy, okay, I've totally done with the other story. Now i got a whole new story here. Kids are like, okay, i got to make it interesting. So, you know, pressure's on. But again, you know, everybody should have my problems. Mm-hmm. I make up things and then I draw them. That's my job. When, when you do lay out th- these books, like, how do you, do you come at it kind of half visuals, half kind of writing? Like, are you scripting and then kind of doing the visuals to go with it? Or, like, how does that process kind of look? Because you're doing everything. Um, it, uh, it took a little while, actually. It took, uh, it, I think one thing that slowed me up as far as coming back to writing and drawing my own stuff is that I knew that um, I had to, you know, get my muscles back as far as the process of it. And uh, it has become a very kind of specific process. I'll, I'll begin by doing um, a rough outline that I sort of take it scene by scene. Literally that, like scene one, and I'll describe what happens, and, you know, maybe an idea or two, then scene two, um, you know, come up with that, scene three, and it's, that's, that's a handwritten outline. And then I'll take that handwritten outline and sit down on my computer and type up the dialogue that comes out for each scene. And... Um, then I'll sit down. Usually, the way it works out is I'm probably about thirty pages into, um, you know, or I just I just reach a stopping point where I'm saying, okay, I don't. Now I'm in the weeds. I don't know what the pictures are looking like right now. Mm. 
I have no idea what the pictures are looking like. So let me take uh, let me take these these pages and now start mapping them out. And I'll literally like look at the dialogue and go like, okay, panel one, that's two, that's three and four, and that's five. Okay, page two, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they start sketching it. This is just sketching it out, you know. Um, it used to be on eight and a half by eleven paper, now it's on my iPad Pro, and uh, and just draw it out. And it's it's um, sort of laborious, but it's it's just how it works. Um, and then when I'm like about thirty pages in or so, I was like, okay, now it's now we go back to the computer, type up more dialogue, and back forth, back forth. And uh, because I go back forth, back forth, I kind of it's never that like, oh man, I'm running like forty pages short or running 40 pages long I always kind of know where I'm, I'm landing it's just it's I just got sort of a feel for it that it's always it's gonna be around 200 pages I just know it by now <laughs> um, and that's okay you know it it's I mean, just it's one of those things that now I'm I'm six books in and I'm I, I know how to do this I know how to do this hilo book this way for me I have, a, I have a question. Of, no, so in the five books, so the first two books, you had a different colors than books three, four, and five. What kind of precipitated the yeah. change? Oh, uh, just uh, scheduling. Uh, guy major got busy and um, had to step away, and uh, and Steve was was available. Um, I mean, it's it's the only it's the only thing that's changed about the books. Um, it's the only thing I can't do by myself. Um, so it's it is purely about. Um, just that availability, and after that, you know, um, my colorists just have to, you know, both Guy Major and Steve Hummer, who uh, followed him, have to um, uh, just uh, one maintain the look and and frankly make me look a lot better than I actually am. <laughs> so that's I'm I'm all I'm always very very grateful. I mean, I point out to Steve, um, yeah, like if you look at the uh, there's a uh, scene in the book uh, where Hilo and DJ go into this void. Mm-hmm. And um, if you see the black and white drawing, it's 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 not much to look at. Uh, I mean, I drew all these things floating around in there, but then I just I literally googled the word void and had like these ten sort of images of space and color and this and that. And I sent them off to Steve. What Steve do? He made it. He's like, oh my god, look at that! Oh my god! Oh look at the frog! Look underneath the frog looks. It's just you know, it they really. Um, I try to sing the praises of my colors as much as I possibly can. Um, and um, they just, they really, really, really just make it look, you know, 100% better. When they're working on their pages, like how much interaction or back and forth is there with you? Or at this point, you kind of trust them to kind of do their job and then you'll kind of see it when the finished product's coming in? Or how does that, how does that look for you? Oh, they send chunks at a time. I mean, they, they, you know, a lot of our look has been established when there's new characters. It's sort of like, I'm thinking sort of like this, maybe like this, or it's like, I don't even know. You know, like, definitely just make sure that, you know, that, you know, his his hood is blue or whatever the heck I, I, I need. But um, it's usually a chunks come in at the time, and then there'll be notes. I mean, you know, the notes might be anything from, like, you know, that isn't actually teeth, that's her upper lip. Like, okay, got it. You know, it's like, you've got to color your earrings there. No, her earrings aren't colored. It's a shadow. Are you sure? Like, I'm looking at it now. Like, no, you're right. Those, are, those, those aren't colored. Done. Okay, let me fix that. Um, you know, it's, um, it's a very collaborative process in the sense of doing it, then going back over it and trying to figure out how to make it better and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But I'm not hovering page by page, panel by panel. Not at all. A chunk of 50 pages will come in and then I'll go over it and have notes. And the notes are usually not macro. They're usually really micro. 
mm-hmm. you know, that's too blue. Can we have that? So it pops the panel a little more. It's like, oh, that card's supposed to be red from the last book. Okay, got it. Can we make this energy blast more kind of kind of green? Because it's like I don't actually want it to feel different from the last three energy blasts because she's making something new. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like things like <laughs> you know, the things that grown people get to have a discussion about. Like, I love how this talking frog is orange. It's such a good look. Oh, it's such a good look. Thank you. You know, things like that. When you were working on the first book, when you were kind of first developing the palette for what would become the the kind of the, the overall sensibility for the series, was there a little bit more of a discussion between you and Guy in terms of actually figuring out what would end up being this baseline for certain colors? Yeah, no, there was um, that, and also uh, um, that was like the one case where uh, well, not the one case, but well, I'd say one of the few cases where marketing over at. Um, and Random House wanted to weigh in just a smidge here and there, um, which was interesting. They had the forethought of like, yeah, these are going to be our three main characters, so we're going to take a look here. Um, you know, with Hilo, I just I went to Guy said, okay, look, I I kind of want I, I want Superman colors. You know, I want I want reds and blues. Um, he's going to be a blonde. Um, you know, to say DJ's Asian, so let's make sure his you know, his skin color. Uh, you know. Matches that. I said, so his hair is supposed to be jet black, but he said, you know, and then Guy said, so we'll, we'll do Superman black. You go, yep, Superman black, which is his hair, you know, got blue highlights in it. Um, stuff like that. And then you just mess around a little bit. Like, it's like, yeah, and it's like, okay, well, if he's red, maybe he's green, you know, and we'll do her, you know, and then I'm sort of arguing with random ass. Like, is it okay if Gina's like in like pink purple? It's like, so I know everyone's sort of worried about like, like, oh, let's not make her too girly in her colors. I said, it's not exactly girly. I just kind of like it on her. Just like, and then we did it and, you know, it's sort of, it was, it, it was actually fun. I, 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 I hope I'm not, in any way seem like I'm knocking it. It was actually like a lot of fun. If if you can't get interested in other people taking such a heated interest in what you're doing and caring about it, like you shouldn't be doing this. You know, then you should just make your drawings for yourself. Hmm. Actually, you bring up a point as well. Like, what is the interaction with Random House or like with the publisher in terms of working on a project like this? I mean, obviously, now that you're near the end, I would imagine there's probably a little bit less. But what was what's the working relationship been like? I'm sure it's been positive, but what is the, how is it different? Obviously, from you know working in comics, which obviously has a very different editorial structure. Yeah, this is a this is a pretty small group, and it's. Um, I mean, I. I write my first draft, write and draw my first draft, and it goes to my editor, uh, Shana Corey, and uh, and that is kind of it. Um, it's just it's just me and Shana, um, and we will go back and forth, and she will give me notes, and uh, she gives really good notes because she um, she really thinks about like the kiddos reading it. She's you know she's she's she knows like I know an adult, an adult will get this, but I think this might go past a kiddo, and you need to. Be a little more obvious about what you're saying here, you know. And um, her notes are always um, very, very on point. Um, there were more of them when we started, less of them now. Which is like she just because mo- mostly because she's pointing me in the right direction, and, and I'm better at it now. And also, we kind of hit a proper groove. And then after that, uh, there's uh, Bob Bianchini, who's our book designer, because the pages go off to him, and Bob puts the book together, and uh, you know. And color Steve Homaker. You know, one, two, three, four. That's kind of it. Yes, it goes off to marketing. Marketing comes in. I mean, for me, the idea of marketing is like just it. It, it makes me kind of happy. It's just a funny thing. You know, I'll do cover designs, and there's there's a room full of ten grown people who are going to look at these sketches and and kind of figure out you know, what the cover is the book's going to be. And I kind of like that they're taking such an interest in it. It cracks me up. I just mean that in a good way. <laughs> it's like it's like well, you know. 
Izzy looks kind of like she, she looks a little arch in this cover. Like, can we get? I like the facial expression uh, for Hilo on, on cover number one uh, and cover number three for DJ. Uh, Izzy's good throughout, and uh, yeah, Gina should be scowling. Okay, good. And uh, you know, and, and, and a little more energy for you know, and then I'll do another one, and we go back and forth. And it's always been kind of cool, but. I'm not. I don't want to say they're hands off. I just want to say that's more about um, their involvement is always very, very specific. It's it's a great working. I have nothing to complain about. It's a great working relationship, and that's just on the creative end. I mean, I'm very, ugh, I'm incredibly lucky that. I mean, I, you know, the books are published by this small independent publisher called Random House. So, <laughs> you know, they are simply the largest publisher of books in the English language in the world. That's it. You know, that's who they are. They're the biggest. Um, and uh, so they have a terrific sales staff and um, a little boring inside baseball. A lot of publishing, mainstream publishing, is still a very uh, human experience. They have booksellers who literally call or go to meet people who are book buyers in bookstores. And, uh, you know, Bookstores are independent bookstores. There are not very many chains left. There's Barnes & Noble and there's a, you know, Hudson Books, which you find in your airports and whatnot. But for the most part, they have to go f- to independent bookstores and talk to the book buyers. So it's it's a personal experience. And um, if they like your book, they're going to go and talk it up. And I have been very, very lucky. I've spoken to a lot of the booksellers, and they like Hilo. Um, they just, you know, it, it checks a lot of boxes for them. I think they like that it's fun. I think they like that kids like it. And I think they like that, uh, librarians like it, which is wonderful. And thereby, you know, book buyers like it because they get to sell them. So everybody wins. Absolutely. Uh, I know we're running a little low on time, so I thought we'd switch gears for a minute and if we could go back to your comic book career for a minute. Absolutely. Sure. All right. So first up, um, so last uh, last year, I don't expect you to remember our conversation verbatim, but uh, we talked a lot about uh, your work on Superman Shazam vs. Thunder. Now, we just got a deluxe edition hardcover in late 2018. Uh, what was it like getting to have your book you know, recollected in such a nice deluxe format? Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting purely, you know, and I know it's happening because they're doing the Shazam movie. And I'm excited to see the Shazam movie. The Shazam movie has been basically... The movie I would have pitched if someone had bothered to ask me to go pitch a movie. I've been saying this for, I don't know, like a decade. You can see it from the way I told my Superman, uh, Superman Captain Marvel story. Um, I, I sort of see the story as, you know, Superman meets big. I always thought a lot of folks kind of missed the boat when they were telling the story that, that Captain Marvel, when he becomes Captain Marvel, he's not a kid anymore. Like, well, he's got the wisdom of Solomon. It's like, yeah, that's super boring. I think it's way, I think it's way more interesting if he's still a teenager in there. If he's still a kid in there, it's a lot more interesting. It's a lot more compelling that way. Otherwise, he's just he's just like Superman in so many ways. So, um, I was thrilled to see that first Thunder got back out there and I see people talking about it. And, yeah, they get to appreciate Josh Middleton's art. Like Josh Middleton doesn't do um, a lot of sequential art. He still has covers, but he's not drawing a lot of long form books anymore. So, I was proud about that. And also that you know, I got to tell one of Josh's last stories they put there. It's um, it's fun. It's great. I am still very, very, very proud of First Thunder. I, um, you know, my kids read it uh, when the new one came out. Um, I guess read it again, and I love that it's very all ages as well. It kind of reads for everybody still, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's a nice story. It's a nice story. I'm, I'm proud of that. 
So speaking of Shazam, so, I mean, you also worked on The Trials of Shazam, which is also getting a complete collection uh, later this year, um, obviously timed because of the movie. Um, I, I asked yeah. a, a listener question about it, which was, uh, you know, did you pitch Trials of Shazam or was it originally pitched to you? Um, I think it came up in conversation. I think um, I think Dan, Dan DiDio and I were talking about basically like what to do with Captain Marvel, what to do with Shazam. And we, uh, I think we both felt like it kind of needed a kick in the pants. And Dan had this half an idea about like, well, what if we pass the baton over to, you know, Captain Marvel Jr.? Like, you know, what, what if we do that? And um, that's when I came about like, well, okay, what would be interesting? What, what, I said, well, what if Shazam dies? And Captain Marvel has to become the Wizard Shazam. He goes, "Oh, okay." I said, "Yeah, but he can't. He just can't give him the power. He's got to earn them." It's like, "Oh, okay, great. Yes, do that." <laughs> you know, we had just been. It would just been something we we thought about. I mean, I, I and um, and uh, and then I got real dark with it. I think it was way. Um, I had not. I've not looked at it in a number of years, but I think it was pretty dark. Um, and uh, I had a lot of fun with it because I just I just went with it. Um, it's you know I got to introduce new characters and like um, got in my opinion got real Neil Neil Gaiman on it I think he was a huge <laughs> influence uh, on the story if you read it he's going around and um, you know Captain Marvel Jr. has got to uh, you know gain his powers by basically uh, earning the powers from each of the gods that will take up the name of Shazam and now each of the gods are different than they used to be um, a more modernized version. Um, and uh, it was fun. I'm, I'm glad that's going to be out there too. Uh, I love Captain Marvel. It's going to be fun to see him uh, go mainstream. Both of them now, which is nuts. It's just funny how that worked out. Two Captain Marvels, you know, in the zeitgeist at the same time. Who would have thought? Yeah, I, I was. I, uh, I did a podcast when I was after I'd seen Captain Marvel, and I said to someone like, "I never thought the day would come. Like, if you told me ten years ago, or even five years earlier, that there would be a time where within a two month span I would see, you know, both ca- move, uh, both comic book Captain Marvels in a movie, I would have been that. that there's no way that's ever going to happen, especially yeah, in such no, close it's, proximity. It's, it, yeah, I, I think most. Yeah, it's just as nuts as that. I mean, I say this all the time that when I was a kid, I would have gone without food for uh, for for months for the opportunity to see an Avengers movie like we got. I mean, when we were kids, like the craziest thing that would happen is when you had those big giant issues where all the superheroes came together. Mm. Like that was unbelievable. That was the, the nuttiest thing. So by the time we got around to Infinity War, I mean, I took my, my my son's birthday parties. We went. He and like you know, you know, fifteen of his friends. We went to go see Infinity War. And I had to tell them. I literally told this group of kids like, when I was your age, I would have. I probably could have been talked into killing somebody for the opportunity to see what we're about to see. I said because this like this is this is still mind blowing to me. Like all of the superheroes are going to be in one movie at the same time. I can't believe this. I said I can't believe it. You know, for us, it was like, oh, my God, you got this whole thing, and they're like, it's going to be together, like, and John Burns drawing all of it. It's going to be great. I can't wait. You know, that was that was the big deal, opposed to a, you know, $200 million movie that looks real, like they can do it now. It's nuts. Nuts. <laughs> Brave New World. Good stuff. Absolutely. Um, I have a listener question as well, saying, uh, you are credited among the three writers for Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Whose idea was it to kill off Ted Cord? Um, that was in the room. That was, uh, that was, uh, uh, full disclosure. Um, there was a number of people on the chopping block. I can't remember who else was on there except, uh, Dick Grayson, Nightwing, was on the chopping block. And I will go on record that Dan DiDio and I wanted to kill off Nightwing big 
time. We really, really wanted it. And Jeff Johns and Greg Rucka really didn't. And it was Paul Levitz who made the final decision of basically, no effing way are you killing off Dick Grayson. Oh, wow. And, like, and Dan came back like, yeah, he's not going to let us do it. Like, oh, man, are you sure? Like, he's not. He's like, no, there's no way we're doctor. We're talking to do it. He said, it's just, it's too big. He just, he just said, no, you can't. He said, they will literally kill us all. They will kill us all. He's <laughs> like, like, can't you guys, can't you guys see it? Like, Dan, Dan and I were saying, yeah, we know, but God, it'd be so great. He said, it will count. that's the thing we wanted. We actually kept coming back to, it will count so much. It'll be such a big story. And uh, it's like, and you know, we've got so many dang Robins anyway. Come on. You know, someone steps up. Come on. Um, but no, that got shot down. And uh, and Ted was Ted was sitting there the whole time. Ted was probably the odds-on favorite to die because I think we all loved him so much. Mm. Um, we we thought he was a fantastic character who was deeply unappreciated, uh, and the deeply unappreciated part made it easier for us to kill him off. And at the time, we already had another Blue Beetle floating around in the DC universe as well. So it's, it's one of those things where it's sort of you know the the cold harsh light of function, but also it served the story so well because. Because we loved him so much, and the characters that we were working on, they were so close to him, and he made the proper motivation. So it's like, yeah, I mean, again, there was a bunch of people on the list who, like, you know, not a bunch, like three or four, and Ted was one of them, and he kept coming back to Ted. Um, I think it was probably always going to be Ted. I think I think our long shot was Nightwing, which we knew, like, like, oh, come on, come on, like, but no, that didn't happen. So I'll take full blame for almost not doing it. <laughs> it's interesting too because reading it like it's I mean I, I have to admit at that time I don't think I'd read a lot of Ted Court appearances but uh, reading that story it was definitely like the best Ted Court story <laughs> and then it ends with him dying but it was, yeah that, that, no I, I think it was Rucker who said that he said if we're going to kill him off if we're going to kill him off we have to simply tell the best Ted Court, Ted Court story that anyone's ever read we've got to earn it and it's like yeah okay and we'll, we've got to dig in and we did and we did yeah <laughs> Um, and then another listener question, a bit of pie in the sky, but if you could have Hilo crossover with any series or character, who would it be? Um, I would, well, okay. For one, it's like, it's all about me. So I, uh, for one, I would have them crossover with Frumpy the Clown and Barry Ween. My own characters, <laughs> uh, for starters. Mostly because my own children are lobbying for that. My daughter's lobbying for Frumpy the Clown to return and to do a Hilo Frumpy crossover in some way. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Dang, Hilo in like a mainstream character book. Um, I haven't put any thought into it at all. Um, like my 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 go to is part of me is like my go to is like oh he should be with Superman. It's like but you know they're too similar in a lot of ways. It's like I would I would almost want to do something totally different like Hilo and Hulk. Like you know, um, but it's. Uh, it's it's too wonderful and big a question for me to answer it so easily. I I, I mean as I, I when I get off with you, I'm probably gonna think like, oh, I got five more. Okay, I would definitely do a crossover <laughs> with you know. Uh, I mean, I think with Bone actually would be interesting. Oh yeah, Bone's been a huge influence, um, and uh, you know, or getting into it even more. Like, there's a lot of like I don't know. I think like uh, uh, Hilo uh, crossing over into Amulet, mm-hmm. Kazukabushi's book would be a lot of fun and there's so much interdimensional stuff like it almost it almost fits <laughs> it's like, it almost sort of like oh I can totally see that happening like and we could probably stick it between like between books four and five of Amulet and probably between like uh, yeah between books two and three in Hilo right there like that would be a crossover moment that's a crossover point right there <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, 
I could I could be here by myself for another forty five minutes talking about this. <laughs> another question from a listener, which is, uh, when is Batman Long Shadow is going to be reprinted? Oh gosh, well this is one I can I can flat out answer. I am the last person to ask about this. <laughs> Do they think we have any control over this? Like I mostly I swear to you, I found out that First Thunder was being reprinted from a buddy of mine who read about it that you know in previews or something. Like they don't they don't. They don't tell us this, and you know that's fine. There's no, you know, it's, it's not like you know we need to be consulted. But um, at some point it will, because it's Batman. Batman will always stay in print. I mean, I think some of my Green Lanterns and Green Arrows have fallen out of print, but they'll probably come back into print at some point. Uh, you know, based on you know need or they're you know reintroducing the character or a TV show or a movie or what have you. Hmm. You know, they'll, they'll always come. And then, I'm not worried. Okay. The last question I guess I'll ask before we have to let you go is, uh, what was it like working on Batwing? Oh, Batwing was a blast. Batwing was a blast. I, I, I would have been happy to do that for, for years to come. For those playing at home, Batwing was a uh, entirely new character. He's basically the Batwing of Africa. Um, in that case, uh, DC, um, you know, pretty much let me run with it. Like I, I said, can I can I make this realistic and, and, and grim-like like Batman, <laughs> opposed to like I don't want to make it like Indiana Jones. Like you know, I like, hey, I'm Batman. I'm here in Africa, and uh, you know, um, in you know, in, in in hindsight, you know, um, I think probably what they wanted me to go the route of, which never happened, was like closer to like what Black Panther was, some kind of strange technological, um, you know, futuristic thing. Which I I I wasn't I wasn't mentally prepared for that. I, I couldn't wrap my head around it at the time. So it became dark and grim and about. Um, about, well, crime in Africa, which is pretty rampant, just like you know, uh, you know, any major, uh, like, well, you know, I picked a, a major city that's riddled with crime, which is where Batman would be, um, you know, a Batman in Africa. So he was in, you know, in South Africa, um, and uh, I loved it. It really was a, it was a great run, and uh, I got to work with some really terrific artists. And uh, I miss it, I, uh, but I'm, I'm happy it's collected, and I hear about it from people often. Um, so it was fun. It was a lot of fun. When that was, how what was the genesis of that title even like though? Because obviously it's part of the new Fifty Two. It's a lot of new projects are coming out. Did they kind of come to you and say this is this is a project we're looking at? Or did they kind of say you know what we're, we have a lot of new titles coming? We'll pick one. Like how did that kind of work? No, they um, uh, a little bit. They uh, uh, said we got a couple of these things that uh, we're thinking of relaunching, and I, I forget what the laundry list was. And I go wait, wait, wait what's Batwing again? It's like well, we're thinking about doing a Batman in Africa. It's like oh. Uh, let me think about that one. And, uh, you know, like in a couple hours, like, okay, I got a story. Yeah, I, I, I want to do this one. I've got 12 issues in my head already. It's like, I know where to go. It's like, if you guys are cool with this, I never wrote it up. It's like, yeah, 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 do that. <laughs> it's like, it's like, how do you think? Like, it like, wasn't what we were thinking about at all, but we like it and go ahead and do it. Um, it was just, that was, that was a, that was a, uh, really interesting and bubbly time at DC when, uh, lots of ideas are flying back and forth, like really quickly. And, um, that was about, yeah, you got to jump on the speedboat because we're going to go. It's like, you want to do Batwing? Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> jump on. It's like, good, go, good, do it. Um, so that was, yeah, they had that, that that German idea, and I ran with the rest of it. Okay. And then I, I, I apologize. This is the actual last question, I promise. You got it. Okay. Um, I've always been curious, just what was the uh, creation or what was the process of creating Justice League Generation Lost? Justice League Generation Lost. That was um, that was purely an invention of uh, uh, Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns. 
Uh, Jeff was doing. Uh, I blanked on it. What was Jeff doing? What was the, what was his what was his uh, um, biweekly that he was doing then? Jeff was doing a biweekly, and they wanted to have a um, a sister book that would sort of mirror it a little bit. Um, was it brightest day? And uh, we had a big. Yeah, it was Bryce Day. It was Bryce Day. He was doing Bryce Day. And, uh, yeah, we had a big sort of like, you know, uh, round table star chamber <laughs> uh, get together where a, like a dozen of us were uh, talking about, you know, me and Jeff were going to write these two books and a bunch of editors in there because some of these would peel off into the monthlies. And uh, out of that room came uh, like, you know, I forget how we started. It started yeah, I guess you did start. It started when we were kind of going to take all these like, like, like C-list characters and put them in a book and try and make them awesome and then we came back around and like you know what I think we should go with the old Justice League International that's what kept coming back to that's like we should go with the JLI like and the more we talked about it it's like I think it'd be more fun I think it like and then the ideas started coming and, and that's how it happened and, you know so the, the uh, so the sister book of Bryce Day became became JLI you know um and it, it started off as something totally different and landed someplace else it's just where the story went that was fun too Going in the room With one idea And coming out with another It was a lot of fun What was your collaboration Like with Keith Giffen That was great Keith's the greatest It's, it's, it's Keith You gotta pitch yourself Like you're working With Keith Griffin Who like wrote The great stories That you You know You gotta put You try to gotta Not to be a fanboy And um, And just Go back and forth And back and forth And do it And he's great you know, he is funny. He is uh, he is properly grumpy in the right kind of way. That like, you know, you um, come on, just the wrong word. Like he's sharp, and it's, it's, it was it was fun. It was a blast. It was so much fun. And last question. This is the actual last one. Of in that working on that book, who was the character that you found that was the most fun for you to write? Um, 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 great. I just blanked on his name. Uh, 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 who is the Russian guy in the armor? I forgot his name. Rocket Red. Uh, um, yeah, Rocket Red. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. I was. Gonna, I, I kept in my head calling him. Uh, uh, calling him uh, Rocket Raccoon. It's like he can't be Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah. Um, I love doing him because um, from the moment I, I wrote him, it's like, oh, he'll be funny. Like it was just one of those things. Like, yeah, he's gonna be funny. And um, you know, I, 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 it became a joy because it's just somebody who was like a little bit goofy, a little bit fun. And it was unexpected. And he wrote himself. Every scene I put him in, it was sort of like, yeah, he just knows how to interact with everybody. And I, and I just kind of liked him. Um, I was disappointed not long after I left, he like got killed off. It's like, guys, he was kind of fun. He was a funny character. He could have, all right, whatever. It's like, you know. Um, that was a blast. I really, I really enjoyed Rocket Red. He was one of my favorites. Again, because he surprised me. I didn't expect to enjoy him so much. All right. Well, Judd, thank you for spending so much time with us, uh, for giving us another hour of your time. And hopefully we can chat with you again next year when Book Six comes out for Hilo. One hundred percent, be my pleasure, sir. We could have done another hour here, no problem. I wouldn't even, you know, I'm just getting warmed up as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure to be on Comic Shenanigans. I appreciate it. Thank you.